Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host. Uh, I am very happily in the United States of America, in London, England, from S is... Corey Shockey in <laughs> Spain, I think, someplace in Spain overlooking the Mediterranean is Rosa Brooks. And in Washington, D.C., because somebody's got to be holding down the fort, is Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council. Welcome, guys. We had a kind of heavy discussion the last time around about the language we're using to describe the situation we're in in the United States of America right now. Uh, both in terms of what's going on in terms of our borders, how we're treating our allies, how we're treating our enemies, the values that the administration is embracing, the values that the Republican Party is embracing, uh, and the state of the discourse in in this country. I'd like to continue the discussion, in a way, by talking about another set of words that I hear a lot about, uh, where it may not be as clear-cut a case. Uh, and it's not just semantics, but, you know, uh, in the past few days, there's been more revelations that members of the Trump campaign have uh, s- systematically reached out during the course of the campaign to uh, consider and potentially embrace offers of assistance from Russians. Um, and people affiliated with the Russian government. Uh, and in fact, there are, I think, are 13 different people who had interactions with Russians during the campaign. Paul Manafort is now in jail, where he will remain until the fall when he goes under trial uh, because of his ties to the Russians and his involvement. Um, and, and remember, this is a guy who was the head of the Trump campaign for 144 days, but his involvement as a partner with somebody who was a former FSB officer. Um, and one of the things that we've seen, uh, without knowing what Mueller has found or not, is that um, in addition to these the, the, the apparent willingness to gain the assistance from this government um, and the apparent uh, willingness to work with them almost immediately upon election via back channel means uh, uh, interactions with the ambassador pertaining to a whole host of measures uh, linked uh, to some sanctions policies, that since then, the, the administration of this government has, in every circumstance it could, praised the administration of Vladimir Putin, despite everything, up to and including during the recent G7 summit, while the president was attacking Canada, France, 
Germany and our other allies, call, he called for the Russians to be let back into the G8. And he said that the people of Crimea actually wanted to be part of Russia because they spoke Russian. He was literally taking Russian talking points in here. And one of the Kremlin things- Kremlin talking points. Kremlin talking points, right. And so, so one of the things that I've been wondering about um, is, is another term that gets thrown around here. And it's a even more charged term, I think, than fascism, which I don't think most people quite understand, but that's treason. What, what, when is activity not legally necessarily treasonous or traitorous? When, when is it effectively treasonous or traitorous? How far do you have to go? What connections do you have to prove? How much do you have to prove that somebody is not serving the interests of the United States, but is actively systematically serving the interests of its enemies? Corey. Oh, um, wow. I was banking on Evelyn getting this pitch to her as, as more of a Russia expert than I am, or banking on Rosa. The to- lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm really anxious about the extent to which people around President Trump, and it sounds like the president himself, given his role in, in crafting his son's uh, exculpatory letter while on Air Force One, that this isn't normal. This isn't something that, you know, when I was working on the McCain campaign, if I can't imagine us having the reactions much less the reactions once in government. So they're really far beyond the pale. It, I stand to be corrected by you, by Rosa, by Evelyn. Um, just the common sense test is this is not okay. Well, I, I think that, is, I mean, one well, of the, I, I, I turned to you was that I, I thought we should start out with the common sense test, but let's, yeah. Let's turn to the lawyer and throw common <laughs> okay. sense to the world. No, so 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 the constitutional definition of treason, for instance, which is the one most relevant when we're talking about the president of the United States, uh, is is uh, pretty restrictive, right? Treason is not just doing something that furthers the interests of a foreign country. Uh, it is specifically levying, you know, levying war against the United States, uh, or or as the Constitution puts puts it adhering to their enemies and giving them aid or comfort. Uh, but the, the key word in there is, in addition to levying war against the United States, is enemy, right? That, that you can't, you're not committing treason if you help a foreign country uh, achieve its interests, even if those interests might be in the view of many of us inimical to those of the United States. That, that it's sort of, it's intended, it's, it, it's meant in a, in a sort of existential slash military sense uh, and I do think that uh, we have not yet seen anything that suggests that that word would be an appropriate word to use um, about Donald Trump. And I, and I say that despite, as you all know, despite thinking that, as I said in the last episode, that Donald Trump is a sadistic, narcissistic, none-too-bright sociopath. Um, 
who I don't have the slightest doubt has broken a, you know, a passel of U.S. laws, not to mention international laws. Um, but all that being said, I, I actually don't think we should toss around the word treason uh, lightly. I think that I think that it's a little too easy to use it uh, against people who we don't like and we disagree with. You know that 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 helping Russia. Uh, as, as we've seen with Paul Manafort, you know, the things that have the things that the, Trump and those close to him have almost certainly done. Some of them some of them have been uh, indicted for some have pled guilty for some are yet to be indicted, likely likely co-conspirators uh, are, are, are clearly illegal. But I don't think that they are treason. And I think I think keeping that distinction clear in our heads, you know, if it turns out that Trump is giving the nuclear codes to the Russians, you know, then I think we start talking about the word treason, if it turns out that Trump is, is, you know, uh, uh, secretly, uh, and against the knowledge and wishes of everyone in the administration, you know, giving the North Koreans nuclear codes, uh, et cetera, that, that, that then you start getting into the territory of treason, but just being a corrupt moronic thug who's happy to use the talking points of, uh, repressive foreign leaders, and who's happy to be bought by them uh, in order to further their own business interests, that's, that's criminal, that's corrupt, but it's not treason. So, so giving them classified information in a meeting doesn't meet your standard? No. He's already that, done that. I mean, again, I, again, I, think, I, think, I think that the, when, the president is, when the president is concerned, remember, the president gets to decide what is classified and what's not. The president can unclassify whatever the hell he wants to unclassify. You know, the, the, the key constitutional terms are wage war and enemy. Uh, you know, that, that when you're, there's lots of classified information, as we all know, the release of which would do no harm whatsoever to the United States. And we routinely share, we routinely choose to declassify information or the executive branch chooses to share certain classified information with allies and occasionally even with adversaries when it's in our interest to do so. You know, that in and of itself, it's, it's not treason. You know, it, it may be unwise. You know, it may be reckless. Uh, it may be done for corrupt reasons, but it's not treason. I, I, and by the way, I knew that was where you were going to end up with this. And I think that, uh, you know, that's probably correct. Now, Evelyn, we've, we've been presented with sort of a spectrum here. One is it's not okay. The other is... It's, it's still, it's not okay. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I'm, I'm with Corey on that. It's not, no, no, okay. I, I understand. it's not treason. It's just saying, you know, uh, right. I mean, it's illegal and it's not okay. Right. But right. So it's not okay. It, it's illegal. Perhaps what's happened. Um, it's not treason, but you know, you deal, you've been dealing with these issues for a long time and you have to be struck by the fact that there is this pattern of um, campaign behavior followed by a, a period uh, unprecedented in US history in terms of Russia policy that is you know, clearly not okay, but, but how do you describe it? You know, how do you describe the nature of the threat that a presidential candidate can essentially put the policy of the United States, particularly the policy with regard to its principal adversary in the world, uh, up for sale. Right. Well, I would say, if the question's directed at me, it, you know, that, that he is jeopardizing U.S., American national security interests. 
And he's doing it at a great advantage to our, our number one immediate adversary, which is Russia, because let's make no mistake about it. While the North Korean nuclear arsenal is a potential threat to the United States, the immediate th- and while we have concerns about China and what they're doing with their military buildup um, around the world and their technological race and their arms races, you know, the reality is at the moment, the only country that's determined to see the United States become weaker to um, that is competing with the United States for influence in Europe and elsewhere in a very negative fashion is Russia. I mean, I could go down a list of, you know, everything that Russia is doing to negatively affect U.S. national security interests. But clearly Russia is an adversary. And, and again, the, I think that the, the number one crime there, of course, is not just the invasion of, of sovereign countries in Europe, two of our partners, but also, of course, the attack on our elections. I mean, that is really the number one crime on the long list of, of, of crimes committed by the Kremlin. So what Trump is doing by essentially minimizing all of these assaults that Russia has conducted on the world order, on international values, on the sovereignty of states, is to lower our defenses and lower the collective defenses that we have with our traditional allies. First and foremost, of course, our NATO allies, our allies in Canada, actually, our North American allies, of course, too, but Canada is a member of the NATO alliance, along with the European, the, uh, what is it, 27, 26 other European countries. And so it's, it's a very dangerous situation that he's putting us into. And over time, it's becoming increasingly dangerous because, again, he's conflating the, well, he's minimizing the threat posed by Russia amping up the threat posed by North Korea only to pretend that he solved the problem, and then having these high-level meetings with these authoritarian dictators. He wants to have one with Putin, too, which I'm sure is on your list of topics for today. And at the same time, he's cutting down our relationships with allies, and in fact, even the heads of many of those governments with his um, disgusting tweets about Justin Trudeau, for example, the Canadian Prime Minister, and his and the way that he's treated our allies, as well as the collective organizations and institutions that we, the United States, created with these allies in order to keep ourselves, as Corey wrote in her op-ed that we discussed in the earlier podcast, um, uh, more safe and secure. So what what he's doing is not only completely misinformed but it's really dangerous and it's and it and what it does is it starts a process of misinforming and miseducating Americans we let down our guard vis-a-vis Russia and then they will attack us again in the midterms or do more pernicious things like spread their money around our country and buy influence we've seen them do that already of course it, it appears in the Trump campaign but you know me we may find out elsewhere so it's uh it's it's highly disconcerting to me that this president fails to accurately and honestly portray the real threats to America. Well, so, I mean, b- beyond that, Corey, the, the reality is that the real threats persist and seem to grow. The Russians tried to put their thumb on the scale in Brexit. They've tried to put their thumb on the scale elsewhere in Europe. They tried to do so in Italy, had some success in those regards. 
um, have behaved in egregiously bad fashion in a variety of other places. And according to our own intelligence services, <laughs> seem to be ready to intervene in the upcoming elections for which this administration has really not worked very hard to harden our systems or prepare us. And so quite apart from the campaign, quite apart from the issue of money, if you accept the issue that Russia is our primary adversary, you would have to say that on literally every point that a competent policy would act, this administration has done the opposite. Uh, well, so for me, so I don't disagree that the administration, and let's not let Congress off the hook here either, have done much, much too little to strengthen American defenses against Russian subterfuge. For me, though, I think the administration's Russia policy is actually a lot better than I anticipated it being. Um, you know, the president may be dragging his feet some on implementing sanctions against Russia, but he did sign the law that the Congress passed. Uh, and uh, he was willing to run a series of risks of escalation in conflict with Russian forces by attacking the chemical weapons, um, retaliating for chemical weapons use in Syria. Um, he hasn't actually uh, yet met with Vladimir Putin and sold our NATO allies out, although I continue to be very concerned about that possibility. For me, the surprise isn't that the president has, and Republicans in Congress have done so little, it's that they actually haven't done a lot worse because I was anticipating them doing a lot worse. And I think it's the activism of American civil society and sharp intelligence work by American allies that have made it hard for the administration to do what it otherwise wants to do. You know, I, I, I want to follow up on that with both Rosa and, and uh, Evelyn in a second. But I know that the deep state radio nerds who are listening to this are going to start writing in and asking whether you have a fatal illness or, uh, <laughs> you know. So I will, uh, of course, answer our devoted deep state radio nerds to say that because I am a woman of the 19th century, I fear I have fallen ill with consumption. But wow! I am told it is merely a common variety summer in London, i.e. winter in California, cold. I see. But you are taking care of yourself. Yes, indeed. I thank you for your concern, fearless leader. Yeah, well, no, I just want to make sure. Because I also assume Rosa and Evelyn probably have some good uh, home remedies that they could <laughs> Go demand antibiotics <laughs> right away, Several. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've just I've just finished a battle. Everybody's sick on all sides of the Atlantic. Uh, yeah, no, no kidding. Well, Rosa, you know, Corey, it, you know, trying to reclaim the uh, tiara of optimism there, um, suggested that the U.S. has not actually thrown the NATO allies under the bus. I don't, I don't, you know, I hear these muffled screams, and they're coming from under the bus. <laughs> 
and they're in German, French, and a variety of other <laughs> native languages. I don't know what other evidence she's looking for, but perhaps you have a, the same view she does. Um, well, I think I think she's not entirely wrong or entirely right. I'll say diplomatically. I, you know, I, I think that we once again see uh, that there is not really one U.S. policy. There seem to be multiple U.S. policies um, that are in tension with one another at the moment. Um, and the the policy coming out of the Defense Department and the policy coming out of Foggy Bottom and the policy coming from the Intelligence Committee and the policy coming out of the White House and the policies coming out of Congress are not entirely the same. They're not in sync with one another. Um, you know, Trump and, and this is not this should not be a surprise to any of us that Trump, as we know, is a law and policy unto himself. Um, and he is perfectly happy to contradict his own senior most hand-picked officials, uh, you know, 20 seconds after they say something. Um, so, you know, I think the <laughs> the majority of people serving in the Trump administration have been making at least a feeble attempt to uh, continue some semi-normal American foreign policy when it comes to relationships with allies and when it comes to vigilance against adversaries, traditional adversaries. Uh, Trump himself is making it very difficult for them to sustain that because, you know, he keeps contradicting them. Um, so, so I think you're, you're both right, <laughs> I suppose I would say. And, you know, one, one f further thought on the, the treason question, um, and thinking about Evelyn's comments, uh, uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, when it comes to the president, it's fundamentally a, as, as with so much else, it's a political term rather than a purely legal term. Uh, the Congress can, you know, if there is if there are impeachment hearings, it's ultimately up to Congress in bringing them and the Senate in voting on them to decide what behavior constitutes treason, who counts as an enemy, uh, what counts as giving aid and comfort to an enemy. Uh, it's a and that's a political decision. It, it, there's there's no way for it not to be a political decision. And depending on the outcome of the midterm elections and the political calculations made by uh, Democrats, if Democrats do gain control of uh, one or both houses in the midterms, um, we may see that that debate uh, being played out. Okay. Well, now, Evelyn, in 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 going through this, you mentioned in passing this desire that Trump apparently has to have a meeting with Putin someplace, um, uh, probably in Europe, because Putin apparently doesn't want to come to Washington, uh, perhaps for fear that he will be subpoenaed by Robert Mueller. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in, in any event, uh, you mentioned in the prior episode that you had recently had lunch with our friend Susan Glasser, who wrote kind of an interesting piece about this in which she said, you know, the, there are a lot of people in the administration that do, don't think Trump should meet with Putin, but Trump's just committed to the idea. He he wants to meet with Putin and he's not going to be stopped. And I was wondering what your view was on that. Yes. Well, it's unfortunate. I agree. I mean, all of the evidence points to her conclusion. Uh, and her conclusion is actually a, a quote by a U.S. official who works in the White House with Trump, so with the president. So um, it's it's he it acts absolutely has this bee in his bonnet that he must meet Putin and deal with him. And 
he again has this idea that he alone can make a deal. You heard, we heard what he said about uh, letting Putin into the G7, his, his G8, well, making it the G8 again. His rationale was, well, if he's there sitting next to me, then we can make a deal just like I made with Kim Jong-un. Well, as we know, he made a deal with Kim Jong-un to make a deal that we don't have a deal yet with North Korea. So I don't know that we need any good good optics with Russia, and certainly not given everything that they've done to earn being ejected from the G8, which really, first and foremost, was their invasion of Crimea. I think the G8 might have ejected uh, Russia later for the meddling in Western European and U.S. elections. I would hope they would have. But in any event, they earned it by illegally attempting to seize the territory of a neighboring state the first time since the end of World War II. So the fact that our president was willing to just sort of um, disregard that, you know, almost give it the pardon, if you will, um, is truly alarming. And again, reflects his lack of understanding or a lack of interest in the international order, because again, he wants to dismantle as much as he can. He seems quite uh, to be on a destructive tear. And if you read Stephen, Steve Bannon's writings, um, when he claims that Ban at one point, I guess he was claiming Bannon was his muse or Bannon was claiming he was Trump's muse. You know, the idea is just to dismantle the international order, dismantle the state, etc. So sitting down with Putin would be highly negative in terms of our values and our interests. And I can go on from there, but I, I, I also believe, again, when he's doing this at, at the same time that he's treating our allies so horrifically, just sends the absolute worst message. And again, could end up being highly confusing to the American people because we have to be very clear who our friends are and who our adversaries are. You know, I think when it comes to Trump, it's very clear. Um, Corey, let me, uh, out of deference to the the nerd universe that listens to this show, <laughs> ask you ask you a kind of a otherwise known as my voters. Yeah, right. As your constituency, yeah, I would like exactly. to ask you a slightly nerdy uh, question, uh, which may seem abstract from the news. But one thing that struck me, well, you know, this Trump was having this discussion about what well, we should have Russia back in, you know, because. You know, we have to make deals with them. And, you know, this is what the G8 is for. First of all, I, I don't know that he fully understands what the G8 is for. Um, um, and that, in fact, it was for economic coordination. They're supposed to be the biggest economies in, in the world. And, in fact, Russia's economy is the size of the economy of Belgium. But beyond that, the um, second largest economy in the world uh, which will soon be the first largest economy in the world, is actually not in the group. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, if you're, if you're going to talk about deals, you know, why are you putting Russia ahead of <laughs> China in line here? It just doesn't make some sense to me. Uh, and if you're going to talk about out of the G7, you know, bye-bye, Italy. You know, I mean, you know, this is not... You know, Italy was relevant on the world stage, you know, as a major player last in, you know, I guess the middle of 1943. So Allow me to recall for you the Italian statesman 
who said, governing Italy is not only impossible, it is also pointless. Yeah, well, exactly. But, <laughs> so anyway, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, the state of the, the G7 uh, seems to me to be something, you know, worth discussing, just not in the way that Trump's discussing it. So I would actually go even further than you, David, which is that um, the point of the G7, as you rightly attest, is economic coordination among the major economies. President Trump has no intention of doing economic coordination among the major economies. So, so having anybody in the G7 is pointless, which I think is why our closest friends and the leaders of other major economies are whispering quietly about a G6 plus one, where the United States is the odd country out. That, like, that's where we are with, with President Trump willfully isolating the United States. He seems to think that we're big and tough and strong if we can't get along with anybody, when in fact, the genius of American power has been getting everybody to hold hands and take one step forward together. So, so what the G7 was supposed to do was allow leaders and central bankers to have a common picture of what's occurring in the global economy and take coordinated private steps to forestall trade wars, uh, central bank discontinuities of the kind that make financial crises worse. And President Trump, as you rightly point out, David, uh, I think failed to take Econ 101 because he doesn't seem to understand anything about how the economy runs. So why should he be able to coordinate it with others? Yeah, Having no, Russia in the group would the, only add another leader who doesn't understand anything about the economy and can't get along with the other countries. But can I can I just jump in because there is one other distinction about the G seven that was really G seven and then G eight that is important. I mean, it was also founded by democracies, and that was intentional. So it's not just that they're the, the the largest economies, but they're also the largest democratic economies. And at the time that Russia was allowed in, it was the nineteen nineties under President Clinton, I believe. And nevertheless, we thought that Russia was behaving like a democracy, more or less. So I think. That's also important to note, because if any country then should be let in the door to make it aid again, it should be a country like India. Well, OK, that's a that's a, a thought. I, I think if you're going to coordinate economies, you should have the biggest economies there, um, because ultimately, you know, the purpose is an outcome. But there is there is that there. You know, one of the things, interestingly, Rosa, in, in all of this is that the Chinese are never ones to sort of let an opportunity go by. And they have said in the past couple of days, you know, that all the countries that the United States is waging trade war against ought to get together to defend the liberal order. So, you know, I mean, it, it may be the G7 minus one plus another one that, that deals with the, the threat to the global economy posed by the United States with China at the lead, if the United States is not careful. Yes, very possible. And and that this is the brief moments when I try on the uh, uh, tiara of optimism. 
you know, I think, I think. I'm happy to share it with you, Rosa. <laughs> Thank you, Corey. Uh, our, our friend Ed Luce, I believe, has told me firmly that it's delusional for me to think so. But, you know, in my more optimistic moments, I think that the the U.S.'s loss will in the long term be the world's gain, uh, that the U.S. Uh, uh, voluntarily sequestering itself in, in you know, the straitjacket of insane Trumpiness uh, will inspire other states that care about that rules-based uh, liberal order, liberal international order that, that Corey has spoken so much about. Other states that care about that will, will have to band together. And if that means actively taking steps to isolate the United States rather than just kind of muttering unhappily about the United States, then that's what it will be. And that that's not necessarily such a bad thing in the long run. I, you know, is that realistic given that unfortunately, as we have seen uh, even more in the last, in the last couple of weeks, our other potential champions of the, of the rules-based international order have their own problems. Uh, you know, it's not clear that the German government is going to survive, uh, for instance, uh, you know, that they've got problems of their own, um, including in many countries uh, that make up the rest of the G7, including resurgent populist nationalism with overtones of proto-fascism. Uh, you know, so, so it's, uh, will, will this happen? I don't know. I think, I think that it's at least 50-50 that we simply see a state of disarray in the international so-called order for the next, uh, you know, two to three years at a bare minimum, and nobody emerges uh, as a strong leader, and the other states are not able to get their act together to provide a decisive champion uh, for the values that the U.S. once claimed to be a champion for. Okay, so let's just continue in this nerdy vein here for a second. We've only got about five, six minutes left to go. Um, but Evelyn... Um, one of the other things that's going to happen in just a couple of weeks um, is is a NATO summit. Yes. And and that's not going to be terribly comfortable. You know, what are the odds that Trump gets a bad cold like Corey has and can't go? That would be phenomenal. But I'm afraid that's not likely because the talk is that he's going to do this Putin get together potentially in Vienna or somewhere else, uh, before the NATO summit. Now, I'm actually glad for the I mean, sequence. But seriously, right? what kind of fucking message does that send? Well, it's a horrible message. I mean, it's a terrible message, but I don't want him not to go to the NATO summit, especially <laughs> if he's doing the Putin get-together. And I prefer him to do Putin before he does NATO because, frankly speaking, it's better optics for him to go then and read out the NATO folks rather than the other way around. He does NATO and then he looks like he's reading it out to Putin, you know. Um, well, he's to do the Kim Jong-un thing, you know, where he like throws all of them under the bus and then he goes, but this is my real buddy. Here's it has guy. always oh. been American diplomatic policy to meet with your friends first, to reassure them you are not about to make a deal that they're going to be uncomfortable with. And I, for one, would be sleeping a lot better at night if President Trump would be doing that. I'd be sleeping a lot better at night if he weren't President well, Trump. Yeah. I mean, in the Russia context, we did a lot of, not at the presidential level, but at the sub-presidential level, if you will, uh, even sub-cabinet level, but where... You would have been meeting with the Russians. Are you thinking yourself into the sub-president of the... No, it's not myself. I'm thinking of, like, the assistant secretary level. 
maybe even the cabinet, where they would meet with the Russians and then go and read out the allies and the Ukrainians in particular. So they would do it in that order in order to allay the fears of those who think we might have been about to sell them up or down the river. Um, but I think uh, the NATO summit, unfortunately, is... I, I, before, I thought it would be kind of unproductive and there would be this you know, usual... I guess, admonishment of the allies that haven't reached the 2%, you know, because the 2% of their GDP on military expenditures. And of course, we know the bulk of them still have yet to reach that goal. And of course, it's a political goal. But for our president, it's the be all and end all, I guess. And so I was kind of girding up for a slightly boring, you know, scold laden kind of confab. Now, I'm a bit worried after the G7, you know, what will it be like? And so part of me would love it if our president would just take a pass, even though that's not a good optic either, as long as he's not meeting with Vladimir Putin. So long as he's still, you know, intent on meeting with Putin and that goes forward, then uh, he's got to do the NATO summit as well. Yeah, it's Trump's the first president who really seems to have the possibility of going from the NATO summit to the Axis of Evil summit and participating in both. Yes. Um, Corey, <laughs> one of the, Well done, David! Yeah, thanks. One of the things that, I, that, that has been sort of talked about is that the Europeans, or some Europeans, seem to be thinking, well, maybe we could put together a little package to placate Trump, because we know he's such a maniac, on on our NATO uh, contributions, and I, you know, to me, I look at that and I think is is giving into his bullying after the treatment at in 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 Charlevoix, where, where, where the the Canadian event, um, really a good idea or not? What would you advise? You're there in Europe. If they call you up and they say, "Come, let's let's have some," uh, you know, uh, schnapps. What 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 would you advise them? Uh, so um, I think I see several different models of how allies are trying to navigate the erratic and unpleasant experience of dealing with President Trump. One is the Merkel model, which is to be um, a towering pillar of Western virtues and keep your distance from him. That has been unsuccessful. The second is the Macron, Xi Jinping, uh, Japanese Prime Minister Abe, uh, Prime Minister Theresa May model of uh, be his buddy and hope it translates into policy compromises. That hasn't worked. Um, I thought the person whose model was working best was the Canadian Prime Minister, which is be distant, pleasant, and work around the president with American states and businesses. Um, but, but now I'm less sure, given the president's insane press conference and tweets about, uh, about Trudeau. I think the honest to God truth is there is no successful strategy for dealing with President Trump. Nothing is actually going to work. And so what I would advise allied governments is 
given that you are going to fail, does it better help you sustain your security interests and your long-term relationship with the United States to look like you are trying and snubbed by the president or to look like you are not trying and waiting him out? And I think that will vary from country to country. Well, my my advice, um, in case they ask for it, which they haven't, um, would be to cooperate as actively as possible with the Mueller investigation. Um, because I think that, uh, you know, they have intelligence services, they all have experiences with Russian intervention. Uh, and honestly, we could use a broader picture of that, but it may also help get rid of the problem, which is, is Trump. I just, you know, want to say as a footnote that it is one of the great scandals in American history that we have had this Russian intervention and interference in the election. And there is no bipartisan commission to look into how it happened and how do we stop it. Um, let me take this a step nerdier. You can certainly comment on that, Rosa, for the last word. But something that... <laughs> how much nerdier can we possibly get? Oh, no, I'm going to get <laughs> I'm going to get as nerdy. As nerdy oh, oh, choose me, choose me. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just, you know, the, the, the luck of the draw has, has me going to Rosa as the, the, the nerd in question here. But the United States has once again said that it's going to quit the UN Human Rights Council. <coughs> and, um, you know, you mentioned having been a human rights lawyer. The U.S. wants to do this because the UN Human Rights Council is mean to Israel, apparently. Um, but I think they might also want to do it because the UN Human Rights Council might start being mean to the United States for its border activity. Well, they've always been fairly mean to the United States for some of the reasons that I articulated earlier, which is that we uh, have a fairly bad record over many decades when it comes to domestic human rights. Right. Well, I think that's true. So but the question is, what's your view on the U.S. being poised to quit the UN Human Rights Council? Uh, I think it's a mistake. I, I mean, the, cri the criticism of the UN Human Rights Council uh, has always been, and, and it's been quite consistent from uh, multiple previous administrations, uh, that it's a, a highly politicized body, uh, that it is because of the way the UN works, where one state is equal to another in informal UN terms. Uh, it often ends up being stacked with states that are extremely abusive themselves, who then, you know, sit in judgment on other states. And, and those are all, on the one hand, those are all accurate criticisms of the UN Human Rights Council. Uh, on the other hand, you know, my, my general default view on almost everything, almost all the time, not always, always, but almost all the time, is that it is better to be part of the conversation than to cut yourself off from the conversation. Uh, not least because it's always good to know what the people who you don't like are getting up to behind your back. Um, you know, that, that it's, it's never a good idea to say, okay, we're, we're taking our ball and going home when it comes to international fora. Um, so, so I think that that remains true. What, you know, is, is it a, is it a entirely credible body? No, not always, uh, not often. Um, but, but, you know, I think that we we do ourselves more damage by walking away in a huff, which which needless to say, uh, previous presidents have also at different points in time threatened to do and done. Um, so, I, you know, I don't think the stakes are that high uh, on that in particular. 
Um, but I do think that, you know, when you think of the, the many, many ways in which the United States is currently severing ties and fraying ties with allies and, and fraying ties and severing ties with multilateral and international institutions, um, it would even, even more than usual, it would be a mistake to, to take our ball and go home. Well, I think that last point is a critical point. If you say, you know, TPP is an example, or the Iran deal is an example, or the Paris Accord is an example, or NAFTA is an example, or uh, NATO is an example, or the G7 is an example, or et cetera. The United States is right now in the midst of the biggest kind of retrenchment movement away from the multilateral system that we've set up, the international order that we've set up uh, in a long time. That's where we began the last episode with our conversation about uh, Corey's column, which if you haven't read, you should go out and read. Um, and I think that's where we're going to have to end this one because of time. Uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us. I want to thank Corey and I want to thank Rosa. I want to thank Evelyn. I want to say, Corey, you know, a lot of tea. You're in the right place for that. Get better. <laughs> that's right. Feel better. Um, and next week, we've got an interesting week scheduled because... Uh, our own David Sanger has a new book out called The Perfect Weapon, uh, which is not a biography of Corey Shockey, despite what everybody <laughs> thinks. Uh, um, but it's uh, a, a book about uh, where we stand on cyber, which is a very timely issue. And not only will we have David in for both of the episodes with our usual group to talk about this stuff, but we're going to buy some of the books. He's going to autograph them and we're going to give them out to deep state radio nerds for a variety of uh, reasons and challenges, which you'll have to tune in next week to find out about. In the meantime, thanks to all of you, and tune in again soon for the next Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.